0: Good morning, everyone. Um, Let's pray and we'll get started. Lord, we are under your word again. And your word has the way of, your word is power because it it has a way of revealing you to us. And we recognize that is our greatest need, to be able to have a proper understanding of you It is within the context of who you are we find who we are. Father, we're going to talk about being blessed, what it means to be blessed, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have you. And I pray, Lord, that may those of us who belong to you shout hallelujah because these things are true. May those of us who don't belong to you, I pray that you will reveal our our transgressions and the ways of salvation so that we will go to you. Father, build your church through these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, I thought, you know, a little bit of, you know, personal sharing time. Um, I thought, you know, I was never going to, I wasn't one of those guys, right? I thought I was pretty strong. I thought I was going to get this, but I got it, I think. And I'm talking about midlife crisis, right? And I'm, I'm of a certain age right? Well, I'm, I think now I'm really getting to experience midlife crisis. And, you know, when I was younger, when I was your age, right, I thought, what what is midlife crisis, right? What is this? Is it when old dudes, like, quit their jobs and, you know, go to Hawaii to find themselves? Is it old dude to buy ostentatious sports cars? Is it dude, I mean, dude to, you know, divorce their wives and Get a get a get an upgrade in the form of a twenty-four-year-old girlfriend. What well, what is midlife crisis? I just didn't know what midlife crisis was until I got it, right? You know what it is. Do you know what midlife crisis is. Midlife crisis, and you laugh because you know you're all young, but one day you're gonna be here like going through midlife crisis as well. What midlife crisis basically is, I think, is two things. It's two things. The first thing I think it 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 reveals old wounds. Right? It reveals old pain. When you're younger, right, like when things happen to you, you're kind of resilient. And resilient, I mean you're really good at like pressing those in, right? And you kind of forget about them. But they don't stay hidden for a long time. They come up when you're middle age. And the example I can give you is one of my best friends, he was a football star, a football star when you you played you football when he was in high school, he was my age. And he, you know, he was banged up, as football players do. And he says he didn't feel the repercussions of his injury all throughout his 20s and all throughout his 30s. All the banged up things that he experienced when he was playing football, those injuries weren't a factor when he was in his 20s and 30s. But in his 40s, these things start hurting, right? The shoulder injury that he suffered when he was 17, it start hurting when he's 45. The back pain right the bag injury that he sustained when he was 16 now he start, it starts to hurt and that's a life crisis does like the things the people have sinned against us and and we all of us are victims of sin and we really are and the things that we thought you know we kind of got over w- whether it is sins from our parents or our siblings or our friends the thing, the sins that we thought were okay I'm telling you it comes out when you're 40 and 50. Things reveal itself when when you're my age. Another another a second aspect of the midlife crisis is you start questioning the things that you the things that you are doing. You start questioning why are you working so hard? You start questioning is this house that I'm like working so hard for is it really worth it? you start questioning this career choice that i made what is it really worth it you know what i mean you start to question yourself it's weird and the thing that you question yourself a lot when you're when you're when you're like raised up in churches i think you start to question whether what you really believe is real i think all of us here are you know responsible tax paying Asian-Americans slash a couple of Caucasian-Americans, right? And, and, and then, you know, other races. And, you know, I think all of us, you know, look responsible, well put together, right? We grew up in churches, right? And, you know, we, we come to church on Sundays, do the thing that we do, serve God on the weekends, right? And, and that's, that's been more or less our lives. But when, you hit, when you constantly do this, you, there will come a point, especially when you're mid-age, you a question. Is this what I really believe in? What's the point of doing all this? That's why people get sports cars and girlfriends. Because you don't want to do these things anymore. It's very depressing being midlife, right? And the reason I start these things, start the sermon out with this, that's what you know what, we're studying the studies on the Sermon on the Mount, and the study of the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus' definition of what a Christian is. And the reason why we have to study this is because we have to know what a Christian is. Before we, before we start questioning what we really believe in, we really have to know what exactly what a Christian looks like. Because I think when we start questioning our faith when you're my age, because we really never knew what, Christi- what, what a Christian was supposed to be. And that's why we have to have a clear idea of what the Bible describes what a Christian is. And that's what we're going to study, You know, that's what we're going to do the long series on the Sermon on the Mount. Because Sermon on the Mount is a description, it's Jesus' description of what a Christian is. Right? Look, the first thing, Right? So, so, let's, let be, so a little bit of background. The, to contextualize Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's one of the first sermons that Jesus preached. right? And the whole four, th- three chapters of Matthew is about Jesus' sermon. And in these sermons, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, what it means to be a child of the kingdom of God. The purpose in which Matthew, one of the main reasons why Matthew wrote this gospel is to convey the point that Jesus is the king of the new kingdom. Right? The, the term kingdom of God comes out 32 times in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew starts his gospel like, listing long lists of Israel-like, Israel kings. And after he lists all these Israel kings, he, he, Jesus comes at, at the very end. He is trying to, through this genealogy, he is trying to convey the point that Jesus is king. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God is a motive that comes out over and over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. And therefore, the Sermon of the Mount is about what, his citizen of his, what a citizen of his kingdom looks like. Right? Jesus is the king of the new kingdom of the earth. Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. Right? When he came, the world is split between two, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. After his arrival, the, w- the world is split in two, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Right? Kingdom People who belong to the kingdom of the world behave and believe in a certain way. People believe who belong to the kingdom of God believe and behave in, a, in, in another way. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach you, teach us, through the Sermon on the Mount. Okay? A little bit of, so so back to the point of, of of the importance of knowing what a Christian is supposed to be. I think the greatest danger that all of us have is, is we kinda define in our own heads what a Christian ought to be. Right? We have we define what a Christian is based upon our own definition and experiences rather than the truth of God. I'm a certain age, like I said. And I've been walking with the Lord for, like, for the past 30 years. 30 years? Yeah, 30 years. And during the last 30 years of my Christian walk with the Lord, I went through different phases right, of, of, of Christianity. When I was first saved, when I was in college, I thought Christianity was all about, because of the church that I belonged to, was really about charismatic experiences. I thought Jesus, when I was in college, was a giver of charismatic gifts and was a giver of charismatic experiences. So I I prayed long and I prayed hard to, to feel the fire of the Lord. That's pretty much what my college experience was like. Seeking after the fiery, charismatic presence of the Lord. Because when I was in college, I thought that's what a Christian was. Someone who passionately cries out and tries to passionately experience these gifts of the Lord. When I was in seminary, I started reading stuff. And knowledge starts poofing my head up. And what happened when I was in seminary was I turned into the opposite. I turned into this academic guy. Like I, I, I read a little bit of theology, right? He studied a little bit of Greek and Hebrew. And every sermon that I listened to, I start dissecting. He didn't contextualize this passage. This passage doesn't mean what he think it means. You know what I mean? Every sermon, I was such a jerk, right? Crit- critical. And then, like, after my seminary years, I turned into, I turned into this kind of a liberal Christian. I, th- I turned into a guy who thinks Jesus is all love, man, right? Jesus is all love. I started reading Buddhism, right? I started reading Confucianism. Yeah, man, Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is love, man, right? I turned liberal in my 20s, Right? Then in my 30s, I I turned all psychological, philosophical, right? I thought Jesus was like psychology and philosophy, whatever. So I read a lot of psychology and philosophy, and I interpreted Jesus through the lens of psychology and philosophy. Right? So I had these different seasons of what I thought Christian was supposed to be. And don't get me wrong, there are certain truths about all these experiences that I went through. But what I want to convey to you is, I define Christianity on my own terms based upon my own experiences, rather than what the Bible has to say. In the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in the Beatitudes, uh, like, uh, verses 3 to 11 that we re- read today, this is Jesus' definition of what a Christian is. Jesus is a king of the new kingdom of God, and this is our king's definition of what his followers look like. What is Jesus' definition of a Christian? Let's look at the qualities. Christian, Jesus says, is the one who is poor in spirit. The first quality of the citizen of his kingdom is that you are poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? A poor in spirit means is a person who understands that they are powerless and helpless without God. The first quality of a citizen of the kingdom of God is that they understand that they cannot do anything apart from the grace of God. That they are nothing. They are helpless. They are not self-sufficient. They need God. Jesus says, second quality of of, of those, those who belong in the kingdom of God is those who mourn. Specifically, people who belong to his kingdom are mourning over their sins, are mourning over the sins of their friends and families, are mourning over the sins of the world. If you are a citizen of his kingdom, you will mourn over your sins and the sins in your life and the sins of the world. If you are Christian, Jesus says, you are meek. Those who are meek means those who trust in God. They don't trust in princes, they don't trust in worldly philosophies, they don't trust in their parents, they don't trust in their friends. They trust in God. They know that all good things, all great things come from the hand of God, and so they trust him. That's what it means to be meek. If you are a Christian, Jesus says, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness means basically you are hungry and thirsty to do the right thing to do the will of God, to to be a person of truth, to do the right thing. That's what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says, those who belong to his kingdom are merciful. They're forgiving. When a car passes you, I had a discussion about road rage with my son in the car. I said, son, why do do people get road rage? He says, genetics. I don't know. (laughs) But if you are Christian. You will be merciful when people transgress against you, when people cut you off in the, in, in the road. If you are a Christian, Jesus says you are pure in heart. Pure in heart means your loyalties to God is not divided. You know for sure that God is your life. God is your God. And you live your life for the sake of his glory. That's what it means to have a pure heart, an undivided heart, a loyal heart. If you are, if you are a Christian, Jesus says, you are a peacemaker. You want to be used by God to make, so that you can be used, so that other people can have the right relationship with God, because the first, number one peace that people need is a, is a proper relationship with God and themselves. And if you're a peacemaker, you're desired to be used by God to bring this peace to other people. Not only that, you, to be a peacemaker means you are an agent of peace, of broken relationships. You go and you try to mend those broken relationships. If you are a Christian, Jesus says, you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. These are the definitions of a Christian. Forget Charismatic gifts, forget puffy theology, forget all these things. These things are important, I know. These are, these are the things that you experience as a Christian, but they are not the definition of a Christian. The definition of a Christian is poor in spirit, merciful, meek, pure in heart, hungry and thirsty for righteousness, mourning over your sins, and being persecuted for the sake of righteousness' sake. That's what makes, it, that's what makes us a Christian. If you are a Christian, you will start to inhabit these characteristics, qualities in your life. Why? Because these are the qualities of Jesus Christ himself. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, especially the beatitudes that we just read, these list the quality of Jesus Christ himself. Who is Jesus Christ? He is poor in spirit, is he not? Did he not make himself poor? Did he not, put a, did he not give up being to the very nature of God? Did he not come to be a humble servant for our sake? Did he not live his entire life here constantly depending upon God for everything? Jesus prayed more than any other, any other. Even though he is God, Jesus prayed more than any other man because he was utterly dependent upon God. Jesus Christ himself is poor in spirit. Is not Jesus Christ himself mourning over sins? Obviously, he doesn't, he's a perfect man. He did not sin, but he mourned over the sins of the world and his people. If you look at if you look at the Gospels, Jesus. You, when you look, look at when you look at Jesus crying, he's crying because he is mourning over Israel's sin. He is mourning over the over the sinful nature of this world. He is crying over these things. Jesus Christ mourns over sin. Ephesians 5, I think it says, Paul says, do not not grieve the Holy Spirit by sinning. means if believers sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit mourns when his believers sin. God himself, Jesus Christ himself, mourns over our sins. Is Jesus Christ not himself meek? Did he not do the will of God? Did he not come to do his will? Did he not trust God? To do God's will in this world. How do you know? Garden of Gethsemane, on the eve before his crucifixion, Jesus Christ said to his father, I do not want to do this. Take this cup away from me if possible, but not as I will, but let your will be done. That is a signal that Jesus is doing these things because he trusted God. Jesus Christ depended upon God, trusted God. Jesus Christ is meek. Jesus Christ is merciful. He came and died for us to show us mercy. Jesus Christ is pure in heart. He, is no, he, is no, he doesn't have any divided loyalty. He is loyal to God the Father. Jesus Christ is a peacemaker. He came into the world to mend our broken relationship between us and God. Jesus Christ came to be a peacemaker. Jesus Christ was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the qualities of the bee Attitudes. He's not just your best friend. He's not a psychologist. He is not a genie. He's not a giver of, giver of American dream. He is the quality listed in the Sermon of the Mount. And because these are the qualities of our King, if you are his people, you will inhabit these qualities as well. How do you know that you are growing in the Lord? Do you know how you know? Do you know how you know that you're maturing in the faith? If these things start to become more developed in your life, are you becoming more poor in spirit? Are you becoming more merciful? Are you becoming more thirsty to do the right thing? Are you you becoming more meek and dependent upon God? Are you mourning over your sins more and more? This is how you know that you're growing in the Lord. Right? Because these are the qualities of the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of God. The question we ask you this morning, do you have these qualities? I know it's easy, right, to to define our Christianity in the way that we want it to. But Jesus is asking you this morning, are these the qualities of your life? Look, when Jesus was preaching this sermon to his disciples, His disciples were Jewish people, right? They live in Jewish society. And in Jewish society, because it's a a religious-based society, all the disciples had their own ideas about what a follower of God looked like. And their understanding of what a follower of God looks like like were defined by four major groups of religious leaders of the time. So these disciples had in, had in their minds an idea of what a follower of God looks like. And their idea was primarily based on four types of spiritual, spiritual sects that were Jewish spiritual sects that were alive during that time. Number one, the, the, the first group that influenced early, or early Jewish people's understanding of what it means to be a follower of God, the first group are the Pharisees. Right? And you know the Pharisees. They are the teachers of the law. They're all about external obedience. They knew the Bible very well. They knew the Old Testament law very well. And they they admonished people to obey the word of God, to to externally obey the word of God. So so certain Jewish people in the early days thought being a a religious person was really all about obeying God's commands. Just externally obeying God's command because they, that's what the religious leader taught them. Second group that influenced the Jewish mind of what, are, what what it means to be a religious person were the were the were the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the cool people, right? They knew the they knew the, they read the culture. They knew the culture, right? They knew the culture of 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 Rome. They knew the culture of of the people, and they tried to incorporate the Bible what they know about the Bible with the culture. So they were like me, you know, my philosophy, psychology days. They were like that. They were like kind of just using the Bible to justify the culture. Those were the Sadducees. They were also the Zealots. The Zealots were like th- these political people. Because Israel was under the rule of Rome, these Zealots, what these Zealots wanted was a new political solution. Israel was oppressed by the Roman Empire and Zealots says it is, it, is, it is God's will that they be free from the Roman Empire. So Zealots were all about political solutions. And there were also the Essenes. The Essenes, similar to, um, similar to, to, the, to the Pharisees, they were all about external obedience. But they, what they're about was they didn't want to hang out with like, dirty people. Right? You, know, you know the type of Christians that kind of like go off to the ranch to segregate from the world because the world too sinful? Those were the Essenes. They took the word of God seriously. They took holiness seriously. And therefore, they didn't want to associate with non-holy people. So these are the four sects that define in the, in, in the Jewish mind what it means to be a follower of God. But by preaching this sermon, Jesus is challenging their understanding of what it means to be a follower of God. And as we study these things, Jesus will also challenge our assumption of what it means to be a follower of God. Because some of us, all of us, I think, have in our own minds what it means to be a Christian. Maybe for some of us here, maybe you're like the Pharisees. You're all about external obedience. You're all about, like, just, like, knowing the word of God and doing it, right? And if, you don't, if, and, and, and if you don't do it, you feel really horrible about yourself, and if other people don't do it, you, you're super judgy about that, right? That's what Pharisees do. They are super hard of themselves for trying to obey the word of God, and they're also super judgy about other people who don't follow the word of God. Some of us are like the zealots, Right? We think the major problem in this world, and this is like most liberal churches out there. We think the most major problem in this world is 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 a, is a systematic problem. We think, like like so many liberal Christians, the ultimate problem in this world is in is corrupted systems, like male patriarchy, white privilege, right? Um, what what else besides white privilege? I don't know. Like do we have this like polit- like Donald Trump and his Republican cronies, right? Right? like We think the problem is not sin. The problem is a system. Zealots thought the problem was not sin. The problem was system. And they wanted to correct the system. Maybe some of us believe in that too. Maybe some of us believe the problem is not my sin. The problem is the wrong system. And maybe some of us are like Sadducees. Jesus is cool. Jesus and culture is the same thing. We use, you know, Jesus' words to justify, justify like, the cultural, cultural norm, norms of the day. We define our Christianity just like these people did in the early church, in, 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 during, of the Jews during Jesus' time. And through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus challenges that. Jesus is say, saying, Externally obedient to God, that doesn't make you a follower of God. It has to be an internal transformation. Wanting a political system does not make you a follower of God because Jesus did not come here to give you a new political system. Jesus has come here to make you a worshiper of God. Jesus did not come here to to, to justify culture. Jesus has come here to build his own kingdom. Jesus consistently challenges our understanding of what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian are these qualities listed in the Beatitudes because these qualities are the qualities of our king. But if you think about it, these qualities of the new kingdom are in direct opposite of the qualities of the kingdom of the world. But like I said, this world is separated into two kingdoms. After Jesus came, this world is separated into two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of the world and the people in the kingdom of the world, and the values of the kingdom of the world and the values of the kingdom of, the the of, the kingdom of God, they're incompatible. For example, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. The world says, blessed are the rich rich and poor does not necessarily mean monetary, like having money or not having money. If that's the case, most of us here are in trouble because most of us here make a lot of money. Right? So when Jesus talked about rich and poor, he's not talking about how much money you have in the bank account. He's talking about self-sufficiency, dependence. People who belong, the world says, the world, you know, Compliments those who are smart, those who are self-deterministic, those who, have those who can make their own fortunes. People in the kingdom of God are poor. They know they can't do anything without God. People, in the, people who belong to the kingdom of God are mourning over their sins. They really are. People who belong to the world, says... There's nothing for you to mourn about because you're not you're perfect just the way you are, right? People who belong to the kingdom of God know their brokenness, knows the damage. They are acutely aware of the damage that they're caused. People who belong to the world says, no, no, no. You may be you may make mistakes, but you're naturally good. And everything that is wrong with you is because of external reasons. Your mama didn't breastfeed you long enough. Your daddy didn't play catch with you, right? Or like you know, like you were ostracized when you're when you're in kindergarten. We 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 try to label issues that you have to external factors, but never internal brokenness. That's what the world says. The 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 world honors popularity, right? The world honors, you know, fame and popularity. Jesus, the people in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, people will insult you and persecute you for my for my namesake. You will not be popular. You see how it goes? The values of the kingdom and the values of the kingdom of God is very different from the values of the kingdom of this earth. How, what, how the people live in this world is different from the way the people of the kingdom of God live. And, and the more you walk with God, that separation is, becomes more and more clear. People who belong to the kingdom of God want to do what is right. People who belong to the kingdom of the world want to do what is beneficial. People in the kingdom of the world believe in a philosophy called utilitarianism. Utilitarianism basically is whatever that gives you the most benefit is the right action. Whatever that causes the most benefit to society and you as an individual, that's the right answer. Legalizing pot. It gives you more income, right, to society, right, you know. And it's more beneficial to society if you legalize pot, basically. That's an example of a utilitarian philosophy. Whatever gives you the most benefit is the right action. People in the kingdom of God says, whether it gives benefit or not, that's not what is important. What is important is truth. Right and wrong, what God reveals to be true. Whether that causes great benefit or not, people who are thirsty for hunger, thirsty for righteousness, we're thirsty for what is right. People in the world believe in wealth, self-determinism, you know, individual innocence, and, being, and choosing the most beneficial action. People in the kingdom of God believe in utter helplessness, dependence on God, mourning over their sins, doing the right action. The thing that I want you to ask this morning is which, one, which lifestyle characterizes you? Do you belong, do, is, it, 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 are you living more and more like the citizens of the kingdom of God, or are you more and more living like the citizens of the kingdom of this world? Not only is kingdom people of God different from peop, kingdom people of this world, the blessings that people receive is different. Jesus says, let's look at the blessing that Jesus promised. Jesus says, those who, are, those who belong in the kingdom of God Right? Those, blessed, those who are poor in spirit, Jesus says, they are blessed because theirs is the kingdom of God. So the blessing, the first blessing that Jesus talks about for those who belong to the kingdom is, the kingdom of God is, is, is theirs. Right? Jesus says, um, for, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What does the kingdom of God mean? Kingdom of God means, it's, it, 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 it's a current and future future reality where God personally dwells within the life of his people. Kingdom of God is great and mighty and awesome because God personally dwells there. And when you are in God, when you are poor in spirit, you will experience God's personal reality in your life. Jesus says people who are poor in spirit are incredibly blessed Because they start to experience the very presence of God in their lives. Unbelievers do not experience, cannot experience this presence of God because they are not in his kingdom. Jesus is saying, those who belong to me are the greatest blessed people because they experience God's presence in their lives. Because God's kingdom belongs to them. The world do not know this blessing. The world is just kind of, they kind of make up their own definition of what it means to be blessed. Jesus says, my people are blessed because they can can know God. People in this kingdom are blessed, another example, is because they will be comforted when they mourn over their sins one of another blessing blessings that God gives to his people is when we mourn over our sins, God comforts us. And that's the great thing about repentance. When you repent, at the end of repentance, when you start to understand that Jesus Christ forgave you of your sins, that understanding gives you this huge comfort after you sin. Look, I have had a lot of great experiences in this church. One of my best moments. I had a lot of best moments in my life in this church, but one of the highlights of my experience in this church is this. I, I, that was like three years ago, on a Tuesday evening, right? Much like today, like, unlike today, where right now Tuesday prayer meetings like attendance, whew. Back then, not not so many people. So it, it was one Tuesday evening. It was just me and Pastor Ray. Remember Pastor Ray, the millennial goatee, good-looking pastor. So it was just him and me. And we were just like praying, because pastors do. And then we were just having a long conversation about the fact that God has, Jesus Christ has forgiven our sins. We were sharing about our sins. We were sharing about how, like, it is an incredible thing that Jesus Christ forgave us. And we were just constantly going back and forth, sharing our sins and the fact that we're forgiven. The fact the two brothers were sharing our sins and the fact that we're sharing the fact reality that Jesus Christ has forgiven us, that comforted us so completely that sense of love of God just overflowed my heart and, his, and Pastor Ray's heart because we, he kind of talks about it too whenever we get together because we know that we're forgiven. It's great. Not only that, like look, sometimes when I counsel people here, we talk about our sins. We don't hide our sins. We talk about our sins and, we, and, we, and the fact that we talk about our sins after the counseling session, people feel much better after they confess because they experience God's comfort. The great privilege of being a Christian is, yes, we sin, but man, God forgives us, and we're so much comforted by that. Not only that, when when people sin against us, it hurts. Right? even though we try to like, forget about it and try to ignore it, let's be honest, we're fragile, sensitive people. When people sin against us, it hurts like no, nothing else. My experience is when you take the pain of other people's sin and when you give it to Christ and you work it out with Christ, the wrong that the other person has done, God uses it to build your faith. It's an amazing thing. People have done this crummy thing against you but when you give it and when you walk with it with the Lord, He uses it to develop fruit in you. It's an amazing thing. God comforts you when you sin. God uses the sin of other people to build you up. Jesus Christ, God Himself comforts you in your sins. What a great benefit! Those who are pure in heart, Jesus says, they will see God. What it means to see God? Three things. Number one, you see the glory of God. You start seeing God for who He is. Seeing God means you you, you become become more aware of Him, and you start seeing His glory, and when you start seeing His glory and presence in your life, you are just filled with praise. Seeing God also means you experience His direct provisions in your life. You start seeing His work in your life. And seeing God also, three things, you also mean He gives you the hope of an eternal future. And these things become real when you are in God. The world cannot experience these blessings. The world cannot be comforted in their sins because they don't know that they're sinning. The world cannot experience the glory of God because they're blind The world cannot see God actively involved in their lives because they're ignorant of God. Those who belong to the kingdom experience these blessings. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, these blessings that Jesus talks about in these verses is the true way for us to be happy. Seeing God, seeing His glory, experiencing His comfort, experiencing His movement, seeing His glory, these are the ones that makes us happy. Look, all of us want God to be responsible for our happiness, right? We think God is responsible for our happiness. If we believe in God, God's God is going to make us happy. And you know what? It's true. He's going to make you happy. But he's not going to give, make you happy by giving, giving you the things that you, would, you think you need to be happy. He's going to make you happy, but he's going to make you happy by giving himself to you. Do you understand? God is in the business of making you happy. It's true. But he's not going to make you happy by giving the things that you think you need to make to be happy. No. He's going to give you things, maybe hurtful things, so that you will see him more clearly. And seeing him more clearly, that's the thing that makes you happy. Do you understand? Look, John Piper talks about like, one of his members of his church young guy in his like mid, to late thir- like mid to late 30s has like a wife and three kids. Dude had cancer, brain tumor. Brain tumor. Brain tumor. He's going to die. Jesus Christ meets him in the hospital on his deathbed. And, he's, and he tells Piper, he's filled with so much happiness and joy. Even though intellectually he's worried about the fact that he's leaving his wife and kids behind, But he says he cannot help but to feel this immense joy because he knows God. It took cancer for him to be happy because it took cancer for Christ to reveal himself to that guy. God is in the business of making you happy. You become happy when you become poor in spirit. You become happy when you become meek. You become happy when you are when you're mourning over your sins. You become happy when you're hungry and thirst for righteousness. He will make you happy by making you become these things so that you will see him clearly. If money is going to blind you to him, will he give you money? If marrying the wrong person separates you from him, do you think he's going to allow you to marry the wrong person? Maybe the dream and the wishes that you have for yourself, maybe that's not really what will make you happy. Maybe failure will. Maybe sickness will. Because he'll use those things to reveal himself to you. What the world lives for, what the world considers blessed is different, completely different from what the Christian finds. What, what, what the Christian finds is a sort of blessing. God will do, Jesus will do everything for his people so that you will see, see God. Because these are the promises that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And he will do whatever it takes for his, peop- for his people so that these people would become more like him to inhabit these, these qualities. And the question is, how do we become these people? How do we become poor in spirit? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The question is, how do you become poor in spirit? What do you need to do to make yourself poor in spirit? There's nothing you can do to make yourself poor in spirit, right? How do you make yourself poor in spirit? How can you discipline yourself to be poor in spirit? You can't. Because by our natural birth, we're not, we're not poor in spirit. We're not depending on God. We're born with an idea that we're, we're, the, we're the determine our own destiny. That's what sin is. By, by our natural birth, we are not born poor. We're born rich. We're born with the idea that our future depends upon our own hands. We are born with the attitude that we don't need God. When we're born, we're not born naturally mourning over our sins. We naturally are born with thinking that sin is the most natural thing in the world for us to do. When we're born, we're not born with the attitude of doing the right thing. We're not born with the attitude that we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, we're born with the attitude that everything revolves around me and you need to give me things that I need. We're not born meek. We're not born trusting God. We're born trusting anything else but God. That's how we're born. We're born blind. If inhabiting these qualities of Jesus Christ is the thing that makes us happy, but by our natural birth, we cannot become, we're not these people. How do we become these people that experiences these blessings? That's where grace comes in, you know? Jesus Christ became poor, so that we will, so that we will begin to see God for who, we, so that we can be the citizens of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came and to become poor for us, so that we can become heirs of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ came and He was persecuted for righteousness' sake, so that we don't have to be persecuted, and so that God can make us righteous through His blood. Jesus Christ came, right? Jesus Christ came being meek Jesus Christ came being being Jesus Christ came because he mourned over our sins and the way that he rescues from our sins is by dying for us on the cross we become we become we start to inhabit these qualities that make a person blessed because Jesus Christ came here to do that for us The, way, the reason why we, become, we, we, become, we inhabit these qualities of Jesus Christ is because in him, because he did all this work on our behalf. Because he became poor for us, because he was persecuted for righteousness for us, because he was meek for us, because he mourned over our sins, because he did these things for us, he transforms us into these people who are blessed. Sermon of the Mountain is talking about not only of the, of, of the qualities of, of, of his disciples, not only the qualities of himself, but it also talks about what he did for us. And when you experience this work that he's done on our behalf, you start to be transformed. Look. What is the secret of the Christian life? You know what the secret of the Christian life is? The secret of the Christian life is... You look at Jesus more than you look at your own sins. You look at Jesus more so than you look at your problems. The secret of the Christian life is you become, your mind becoming more and more aware of these qualities of Jesus Christ than your worries and your fallings and then your needs. Look, for example, let's say you commit sin. Right? Let's say you sin against the Lord. And you feel horrible. Right? You feel absolutely horrible that you've done this thing again and again. If you stay there, you're not going to be comforted. But if you remember these words, that Jesus Christ came and he mourned over your sins. And not only did he mourn over your sins, he was persecuted so that you can become righteous. When you actually start thinking about him and what he did, more so than your sins, you'll be comforted in your sins. And not only that, not only that comfort, not only will it be comforting your sins, that will have the power for you to desire to not do sin anymore. It's weird. When you're sinning and when you feel guilty about it, that doesn't have the power to help you stop sinning. Guilt doesn't help you stop sinning. It doesn't. Being comforted over your sins gives you the power to overcome sin. Yes, you're a jerk. Yes, you did this horrible thing. But Christ died for you and forgive you. And when that realization just captures your heart, you really don't want to do these things anymore. You really don't. It's weird. Let's look at your problems. Let's, let, look, any problem. Let's say your problem is I don't know, unemployment. And you, when you just look at the fact that you're unemployed. And when you look at the fact that you look at other people and they're employed. Right? And you look at your friends and they're having families and like cars and buying homes and stuff, right? And when you look at yourself, you're still living in your mom's basement. You go, what, what the? Right? When you start looking at it, you go, oh. But when you look at Christ, a person who just depended on everything for God, who trusted God, and because he trusted God, God gave him glory. And when you understand that like when you start trusting in God, just, like, just as Christ trusted God, and that when you trust in the sovereignty of God who sends you Jesus Christ on your behalf, when that becomes more persuasive in your mind, you will start to feel much better about your problems. Stop looking. I know I understand the secret of the Christian life is to look more to him than to you. That's it. When you read these qualities of the Sermon on the Mount, I know it's tempting to compare yourself to what is written. And maybe that's important. Well, you need to understand that these qualities are not just qualities that you are called to inhabit. These qualities are not just qualities of the citizens of the kingdom of God, but these are the qualities of Jesus himself through these studies I pray that you will understand these qualities of our Lord so that the more you understand the qualities of the Lord, the more that will free you to live a life of power and grace in this world. Let's pray.